The gods of my tribe have spoken. They have said, do not trust the pilgrims, especially Sarah Miller. Gary, she's changing the words. And for all these reasons, I've decided to scalp you and burn your village to the ground. 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 Welcome to the 15th annual No Thanks, No Giving. A decolonization of Thanksgiving is impossible because it is one of the foundational myths upon which the American colonial project is built. A romantic revisionism attempted by progressive historians and colonial apologists seeks to disentangle the legacy of genocide by creating a new accounting of truth. The problem with that is in the debunking lies, we're still being framed by them. It doesn't contend with the actual myth-making, the toxic medicine that at its core is thanksgiving. When we speak of the ongoing brutal legacy of colonialism, we must also speak to the implicit white supremacist cis-heteropatriarchal violence that comprises this nation of mostly colonizers that was recently demonstrated in the horrific attack at Club Q on occupied Nuchu or Utes land. Today and every day, we give thanks for two-spirit trans and all queer relations who continue to resist and fight back and forward against gendered colonial violence. We give thanks for those who carry the spirit of bash back and attack. We give thanks to those who continue to train with self-defense, with weapons and medic skills, and claw their way against colonialism and cis-heteropatriarchy. No Thanks, No Giving has been held annually at Talahuan Info Shop here in occupied Kinflana or Flagstaff for the past 15 years now. Our focus has always been to provide a space where we can collectively gather to celebrate and support Indigenous resistance. One of our first No Thanks, No Givings hosted the powerful force of Catherine Smith, who reminded us what it means to wage long-term resistance against the violent forces that seek to remove us from our sacred lands and all existence. Over the years, we've hosted many voices from Black Mesa and Big Mountain, where the ongoing resistance to forced relocation continues to inspire us deeply to this day. This No Thanks, No Giving, as with previous ones we've hosted before, is organized to benefit unsheltered relatives. And particularly tonight, we'll be focused on raising funds for Indigenous action in Talahoan Info Shop. And we have a, a brief video after we read this statement that will play that sort of highlights that a little bit more, especially because we have some specific debts and um, other projects that we want to cover. Uh, we are not a nonprofit, nor have we ever been. Uh, we rely on the generosity of community support and the guilt of white settlers. Um, so uh, um, we'll give you that update in the video. Um, but we don't want to put a ticket price on this event. Instead, we invite you to donate directly through PayPal to indigenousaction.org 
uh, or indigenousaction at gmail.com. Um, and the links will be sharing uh, on the screen throughout the evening. Um, we also invite our uh, you to support our guests directly uh, if they feel okay sharing their direct donation links. Mm-hmm. And some of us choose to fast on this day. Some of us recognize a day of mourning and some of us fuck shit up. Earlier today at Tawahoan Info Shop, we provided mutton stew for those on the streets here and occupied Flagstaff. We don't care how organic your locally sourced cranberry sauce is, and we don't care if you symbolically acknowledge that the table you're feasting on is stolen. We don't care about how many tokens you brought to the table to red wash your guilt away. We don't care who you voted for to sit and feast at that table or about honoring old pieces of paper with dead words that our ancestors were forced to sign. Settler colonialism is first and foremost about land and power. So no amount of acknowledgements are going to change that. Pass the gravy. How about flipping the fucking table and joining us in the fight to liberate our lands and our people? We're not here to perform for the white gaze or beg for recognition because this day, this time, this month is set aside to address how fucked up the ongoing experience of surviving as indigenous peoples are in the midst of devastation after devastation and crisis after crisis. This is Thanksgiving and this is colonialism. This is and always has been war. We're not interested in woke settler colonialism. With our Wamapanoag relatives, with our Palestinian relations, and with colonized people resisting everywhere, we mourn, we fight, and are agitating against settler politics. This evening, we choose to focus our attention on indigenous anarchy and autonomy, two words that for some of us mean the same thing, as long as we're all agitating against settler politics. So you'll hear um, from our very special guest, Tawinike, uh, who has authored the essays autonomously and with conviction, Reconciliation is Dead and Settlers on the Red Road, and uh, from Indigenous anarchists myself, and Klee, um, who authored the piece Unknowable Against an Indigenous Anarchist Theory. Indigenous peoples have a distinct perspective and position in challenging the state and uh, authoritarian constraints, and also uh, the colonial uh, violence and politics of leftism as a whole. So tonight's conversation will be more of a panel format. And then um, as we're speaking, please feel free to type your questions into the YouTube chat and we'll do our best to tend to them. Thank you to our moderator. Um, and first, we're going to um, open the space for introduction, and then we'll get right into um, basically the basis of why we're here and answer the question, what is meant when we say uh, Indigenous anarchism? So with that, welcome to the 15th annual No Thanks, No Giving. Oka, hello. My name is Bon. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Kokopa uh, in German, and... Um, the Cocopa lands have been uh, crossed by the so-called U.S.-Mexico border. So uh, we're border natives um, and by that colonial 
line in the sand. I'm technically a Mexican cocoa pop person. <clears throat> um, and right now um, for this event, I'm wearing um, a black zip up hoodie. I have a black tank top on. Um, my hair is like long, black and wavy. And of course I have my cocoa paw bangs because you wouldn't be seeing our foreheads getting burned in the sun with our bangs. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. I have uh, brown features, brown eyes, and I'm really excited to be here. Yat e shik e do shidna e shi kli benali dasha jinna torich eat ishabashish chi nakadina dashanala shama e beith chi auto beith chi dasha che zithujinde nasha auto or ayisi kinfanishahuan. My name is Kli Benali, originally from Black Mesa on the Dine or Navajo Nation. Currently, I reside here in Flagstaff, and I'm just really excited for tonight. My pronouns are he, they, and um, yeah, so I'll turn it over to, to Winneke. Hi, Tonse. My name is Winneke. Uh, I live in Bishop Monsoon territory in Canada, um, and uh, I identify as an indigenous anarchist who's been involved in different pipeline struggles um, throughout the years, different struggles against gentrification in my city, um, against patriarchy, and uh, yeah, this question of what indigenous anarchism means is a big one that's been on my mind in the last few years. Um, a couple of pals and myself started a distro called the Africana distro, which uh, means to disentangle and mix this. I'm a mix woman. Um, my dad's side of the family uh, hails from anywhere between the Red River in Saskatchewan and the, uh, or the, sorry, the Red River in Manitoba and the North Saskatchewan River. Uh, my mom are white settlers. So, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Um, excited to see the video about what uh, so thanks for that professional segue. <laughs> I'll start that right now. Hey, Yate, this is Klee. Hi, Oka, it's Vaughn. And uh, we're here at Tullahorn Info Shop. We just prepared with the volunteer crew, which we'll show in a little bit, about 40 meals for distro for unsheltered relatives here on No Thanks, No Giving. And um, we mainly wanted to do this video to show you the space and talk about the fundraiser um, because uh, this space is an autonomous space. We don't rely on grants, just community support um, 100%. And so all your donations will go to keeping the space open, utilities and um, the bullshit taxes that we have to pay. So all y'all settlers who are concerned about land taxes or whatever and want to deal with that, hit us up, donate um, via PayPal. All the information's on there, but we'll also show you the community kitchen that we're having built as well. So we're gonna walk around, and you'll probably see folks. This is the what should be the community kitchen. It's slow going right now, but as you can see, compared to the space that we were just in, this is a much larger space than uh, that tiny little kitchen that we were in. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're looking forward to having this completed. It should have been completed by now, but slow going as with any 
kind of like autonomous project. Find our links to donate on, um, we'll put it up on a few different slides. It's on a post already on Instagram. And then, um, yeah, hopefully you all are ready to um, participate in our um, conversation that we're going to have today. Yeah, and for those of you who haven't checked out the info shop, I'm just going to do a quick little walkthrough so you can see some of the stuff, but not everything. It's been 100% dedicated to mutual aid organizing, um, lots of stuff, even stuff for like kitchen stuff. But you can see the all the food is ready to go out. We have um, lots of supplies that we distribute. There's our no thanks, no giving banner um, from the beginning. Uh, unsheltered distribution supplies um, that we have as well. And yeah, here's what we have going on outside of the info shop. It's a little windy. Yeah, this is our space. We have, we actually have two buildings here um, that we've maintained since uh, about 2011 here, um, or 2010. I don't even remember, but the info shop was started in 2007 and we got this building um, sometime around then. So yeah, yeah. That's our earlier weird like uh, video on the street interlude from preparing a meal earlier today with all our awesome volunteers just to like drop a couple of names. Jenna was holding it down as well as Sam, Brendan, and uh, we had a documentary crew, Peyton and Leah, that were holding it down that have been hanging out with us. Um, and they have some experience with disaster, um, mutual aid disaster relief, which is a freaking awesome organization to check them out. But um, yeah, that operations with uh, Kinthana Mutual Aid, and you can check that out at kinthanamutualaid.org. Um, but yeah, we just wanted to share that video. I'm going to throw uh, the... Um, the screen share of the donation stuff. And I'll put this up again uh, throughout the evening so y'all can check it out. But there's a handy little QR, QR code. Um, we are trying to raise uh, about $27,000 specifically because we own the building and each year we pay taxes and we haven't paid taxes for, well, you can probably do the math if you look at the taxes in this, this um, occupied area. And so that's pretty much what we're focused on as well as like some operational expenses and the kitchen um, project, which you saw is going to be pretty big. So really excited about that and just really grateful for everybody's support. So I think with that, we're going to get right into it. So turn it over to Bon. Cool. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so we already had a question um, come in through the chat for me and it actually, I feel like really answers the question of like... <laughs> What does indigenous anarchy mean to me? Um, obviously, for one, it means there, you know, is no such thing as a border. Um, there's no such thing that would keep people from, um, you know, freely um, going wherever it is they choose. Um, especially in that, what happened um, when? you know, they enacted the border after the Gadsden purchase because all of so-called Arizona used to be Mexico. And then uh, the Gadsden purchase basically um, bought that section of what was Mexico and, and made it Arizona. And the consequence that has had on the Cocopa people is that um, there's tension between, you know, the American Cocopa people and the Mexican Cocopa people in that um, 
you know, it became like a fight for survival and, uh, you know, and, and on the American side, they were enticed by getting, um, you know, checks from the government for extracting resources from the land there and, and building, um, and, you know, and, and the tribe as set up as a puppet government uh, built a casino there. So, um, you know, just that, that capitalistic element of like colonialism and like pitting, you know, different, especially across border communities, um, pitting them against each other and, and really kind of looking at the Mexican Cocopa people as, you know, poor and, and gross and stuff, because um, since in Mexico, there's no like federally recognized tribes or there was no um, like, you know, these false attempts at creating like treaties or anything like that. So there is an enrollment um, for tribes in Mexico. And in some ways, because of that, um, because they were, I don't want to like compare, you know, levels of oppression, but it made it so that Mexican Cocopa people were better able to um, resist their oppression and their uh, resource extraction, you know, via fishing and other like land um, resources too. And so Mexican Cocopa have had a much easier time of, um, you know, holding on to and maintaining a lot of cultural protocols and, and traditions, whereas American Cocoa Pop people became more assimilated to, um, you know, eating pork and um, beef and, and growing, you know, uh, crops that were, came from, you know, seeds that were not indigenous to that area um, and, and things like that. And, and instead, um, you know, kind of lost a lot of the Cocoa Paw way. And I'm um, speaking to like indigenous anarchism. There's, I think, um, maybe like three Cocoa Paw anarchists. And I don't even know if any of us would call ourselves anarchists. And I can explain more on that um, later. But he's taken on the task of, um, being the American Cocoa Paw person who, um, in, in an effort to uh, reclaim some of our, our life ways, goes to Mexico, not under like any guise of, um, you know, trying to like appropriate things that aren't his. He's built relationships with Mexican Cocoa Paw people and they've invited him to like our tattoo ceremonies and invited him to get his uh, tattoos and there's been like a really um, good mutual exchange between him as kind of a liaison between some of the American Cocoa Paw people and, and the Mexican Cocoa Paw people and the hope is that you know we'll eventually end the like inner tribe inter like racism if that even makes sense, uh, between the Mexican and American Cocoa Pop people. So, um, yeah, obviously, like, borders have a lot to do with, um, you know, my perspectives on, on, like, how I identify as an Indigenous person. And I don't even really know if I would identify myself as an anarchist, I just feel like I want like a restoration of how um, 
my tribal community interacted with amongst each other and with other tribes along the Colorado River, especially, because that's what all connects us is the Colorado River and um, bird songs and some of our regalia. And now we're all just kind of like siloed into our own little communities. Um, And so just seeing the restoration of what life could be like without those imaginary constraints that surround our communities and our lands um, is really kind of my, like the root of my like political framework. And I guess that can be called like anarchist um, when it comes down to like the tactics in which I see a restoration happening. Um, But that's kind of like my, my take on it for now. Um, okay, I'll try to speak up because I got the feedback that uh, maybe it's a bit quiet with my mask on. I'll just scoot forward a bit. Um, indigenous anarchy. You know, it is something that I've like struggled with a bit over the years because even in and amongst like myself and other natives on you know blockade lines, when you talk about being an anarchist, a lot of the time what you hear is like well, aren't we already kind of anarchists? Like, why do we need that word? Um, and, it's, and it has sometimes been really associated with, like, a white anarchy that um, is maybe not always helpful. Um, drawing on some of the experiences uh, I had getting to know Indigenous anarchists in the United States, I would say that um, what I've learned is that the United States Canada uh, context is very different. And over the years, um, it's actually been anarchists in, in so-called Canada that have done probably the best job at actually building relationships with Indigenous people on the front lines so that you actually have like some of the most radical front lines, not only like being really grateful for anarchist support, but also even um, even like recently, um, Molly Wickham or like Slato, who's the spokesperson for the Get Em Done clan out in Wet um, territory, put out uh, like a video actually, and in the video actually said, you know, like that the relationship that they had built with anarchists in Canada have been like very like fulfilling, rewarding, and like mutual. Um, so my, my impression is that anarchists in Canada have done a better job, um, at actually, uh, adopting like a decolonial politics, um, than in the States when I have heard stories about, uh, kind of the level, um, that people are at there. So I would say the anarchists are generally welcome on frontline struggles, um, if not like invited and asked for to come often in Canada. Uh, and yet, uh, even in that exchange, a lot of uh, Indigenous folks are still like wary about adopting this this term. But for me, I think uh, the reason I don't feel wary about it, and the reason I'm actually really interested in kind of making it a project to start that conversation in in this like northern border territory more, is that I actually think there's something to offer there. Um, I think that in the, in the context of, uh, Indigenous territories, uh, that are sometimes under almost, like, 
complete or untouched like indigenous governance uh, structures. Uh, there's a lot to be won back. There's a lot to be said about um, our ability to govern ourselves and our communities autonomously. Would it be for like, the absence of the state? Um, and yet, because of colonization, there are a lot of influences, Christian influences, um, like pro-state influences that have seeped their way into our traditions and our communities. And those things are sometimes tough to disentangle. Um, and so, you know, as somebody who is an urban native, but who um, is part of ceremony community, not only within the city I live, but also uh, in territory close to me, um, uh, I've seen those things creep in, right? Um, and what I do think is that all of the teachings I've been given and from the teachers that I really respect, um, those teachings really align with uh, autonomy, sovereignty, um, and uh, generally, like, anarchist thought, if we want to think about anarchist thought, is kind of opposed to hierarchy and domination. Um, but I've also, in many times, heard elders or heard people speak um, kind of with the, uh, with the air or, like, the, the confidence of saying, like, this is tradition, this is ceremony, and saying things that I think are, like, fundamentally oppressive to women, to two-spirit folk. Um, and so I want to be able to act in community, act in ceremony, act in tradition, um, and also be able to say like these are my values and so like these these are these are the ways in which um I want to like take what we have and build on it and and when we're given space uh when all of this kind of crumbles or when we take space I want the traditions and and the values that we put forward first uh, to be the ones that support our autonomy our sovereignty our self-governance and uh, like good relation to one another in the land. Um, so like specifically my dad's family are like Michif, so like Métis, but from like Red River and like Northern Saskatchewan. Um, they're folks that fought like very like in intensely and like intimately, like many sets of my ancestors fought in like the Battle of Duck Lake, the Battle of the Tosh, um, which were, um, basically, it was basically a resistance of uh, Métis people. Also, there were um, different Cree bands that engaged in resistance in the area at the same time with, like, moderate to low overlap, uh, but basically against the encroaching Canadian state when the railroad was trying to be put in. Uh, and they're at the core of what they wanted was self-governance. They wanted self-governance. Now, I don't look back and see all those ancestors as people that I um, think were walking on, on like a good path of like Métis people were like highly, um, highly colonized and influenced by the Catholic church. And so a lot of them are Catholic. Um, and um, being kind of this like mixed race people, even from the beginning, um, they also like often fell into this trap of trying to like adopt like Western governance systems. But on the same side of that, um, they had good relations with their, with like the Cree and Ojibwe um, people that like lived around them. They like, 
lived off the land. They followed the buffalo um, and they lived like very indigenous lives. So uh, they were natives by like any any extent. And the Cree, the word for uh, word in Cree that they called me people is Otempeathawak, which actually means those who govern themselves. Uh, and that was how they were seen. They were seen as people who like had a really fierce uh, uh, need for self-determination and self-governance. Um, and so when I look back, like that, that is what I'm looking for, right? I'm looking to like use these ideas of anarchy to bring an anti-state critique into a lot of the indigenous movements that I see that are really, really good at critiquing resource extraction and capitalism, but maybe don't have kind of the context for critiquing the state uh, in order to hopefully like build communities, rebuild community um, based on our traditions and our teachings, but primarily the ones that reflect like a high value on sovereignty and self-determination, living in good relation with each other in the land. The question, I think first of what is meant when we say indigenous anarchism is one I've thought about for a very long time. I have uh, been really hesitant to engage with settler colonial political identification because of the trappings specifically of leftism and colonial politics as a whole. And this comes from years of interfacing with uh, a range of different people in the leftist political environment, particularly because of where my family comes from in ongoing resistance to forced relocation and resource colonialism in Black Mesa. Um, uh, by Big Mountain. And because of that, a lot of different organizations were attracted to provide solidarity and support. And when I first started learning about these different political um, experiences and theories and proposals, a lot of it was about, um, you know, something that was uh what our our folks were trying to understand and translate um and not relate to but find affinity with and see if these proposals for addressing the problems that we face against our existence and against mother earth would be reconciled with them because the first foundation for the teachings for me everything i learned about life i learned through ceremony and our foundation is Tithlej, which is our mountain soil bundles. We have our six sacred mountains, but four cardinal mountains that are our leaders. And this has been a colonial frustration since invasion that Diné people have been decentralized. They've been autonomous and it's been hard to manage them and consolidate them into controllable tribal governmental aid entities. Uh, this is this is a well-documented experience. Um, 
you know, the, the question of indigenous anarchism for me isn't one that I arrived at as a corollary of or due to the shortcomings of white or settler anarchism. So it wasn't uh, what, anar- what you know, it wasn't doing for us. It is a question that I arrived at in relation to the existence of the state, uh, the ongoing brutalities of civilization, colonialism, capitalism, cis-heteropatriarchy, white supremacy, and there's this the desire for an existence without domination, coercion, and exploitation. And I've I've written about this um, a few places in Unknowable, the essay that I put in um, the introduction for Black Seed, um, not on any map, um, an indigenous anarchist uh, book that was published with Little Black Heart. And all of this comes from the reference point of the Dinette elders and the matriarchs and the resistance at Big Mountain Black Mesa. In in 1979, the forced relocation was codified and started by U.S. Congress passing a law called PL 93-531, the Relocation Act. And in 19, that was in 1974. In 1979, um, the 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 relations I have and other folks from Tithinsa, Big Mountain, declared themselves sovereign. Uh, they rejected the authority of the tribal governments, the Hopi and Diné. Uh, they rejected the authority of the U.S. government, stating that the sacred laws of Diné give no authority to any of those entities to intrude upon or disrupt the sacred lands of the area. And so, my grandmother, um, so it's my 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 father's uh, mother's sister, is was Roberta Blackout. And she was powerful. I, you know, I, I grew up going to the different meetings and traveling with her, driving around sometimes to court hearings and so forth. But she asserted, and this was echoed amongst all the matriarchs that were making the stand against relocation, is that this this land is sacred land. The the man's law, the white man's law, is not our law. That nature, food, and the way we live is our law. Um, and that's something that is echoed from elders such as Meso, uh, Catherine Smith, Pauline White Singer, uh, my aunt Louise Benali. Um, and I've, I've written about this, but I highly recommend checking out a book called Bitterwater, uh, written by Malcolm Benali, because um, it's specifically narratives of the big mountain matriarchs that he interviewed and the way that they convey um the, the challenges that they face in dealing with um, colonial laws and their desire to continue our ways of being as tied through our ceremonies and experience with our cosmology and understanding what some people would call the natural law. So, so this to me was very easy to reconcile with anarchism. Um, it wasn't a, a, a hard thing to do. Um, one thing that I did write in in and I, I it's it's weird that this conversation is turning towards like you know what these kinds of conversations usually do they tend towards like justifying indigenous relationships to colonial politics when ultimately i i just feel like i'm anti-politics uh mainly because the left and the right are dichotomies that were produced out of european enlightenment and government structures and and shitty experiences that they tried to project on in utopic visions that were ultimately um, uh, the seeds for manifest destiny that they tried to project on the rest of the world and colonize um, and exploit. And so one thing that I wrote is uh, 
for the better part of its, its articulated existence, anarchism has been a response to power in the context of European cycles of social domination, exploitation, and dehumanization. And so the expectation for indigenous peoples is to answer with a clear ideological and political response is in many ways a project that perhaps unintentionally for some people serves to justify settler colonial identity and existence. Uh, it's an insidious survival strategy veiled as an overture of political solidarity. So why should indigenous, the question is why should indigenous peoples join the chorus of this death rattle when the killing of settler colonial future is what we mean when we pronounce indigenous liberation? The project of politicizing indigenous identity produces indigenous actors assuming roles in a political theater that ultimately alienates our own autonomy. Uh, but if we study civil movements in the so-called U.S., apparently this is how we qualify for solidarity. And I'm 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 not interested in qualifying for solidarity. I'm interested in building meaningful mutuality in relation or interrelationality with people who understand that we are in this fight together. No, I want to bring up a, an important follow-up to that too, real quick, is that, you know, basically, if you were to do kind of like a translation of, you know, some of the Coco Paw Lifeway into like what it would be called in English, we have a concept for, you know, what's considered anarchy by the Western world, which is skuya, just basically meaning that um, you would provide anything to anyone in need. Um, it's just like the, the concept that everything is freely given because somebody needs it or because somebody wants it. Uh, and and um, that's what we call it. That's um, like the foundation of a life way that I was, I was raised um, briefly by my, my parents, but in the first 10 years that I <clears throat> live with them, you know, that was a concept that was like instilled in me very early on. Um, and now, you know, as an adult, um, my actions of providing Skuya, um, freely giving, um, you know, without, without consideration of like, you know, um, it being deserved or not is, is considered anarchy in this world. Um, so that's just something I kind of wanted to like add to the conversation around like why might people choose to use their own language from their, you know, their own community or, um, you know, might shy away from using anarchy. Cause I see people in the chat saying like, you know, well, the reasons why that people are like afraid, um, or maybe hesitant to use that word is because, um, the characterization or, or labeling of oneself as an anarchist um, might position you like more closely as being a threat. Uh, and it does, um, you know, living in, in the so-called United States and, and really anywhere in the globe. Um, and so I totally understand that, um, you know, that perspective too. So thank you to the folks bringing that um, conversation in as well. Yeah. One thing I would just jump in on that um, is, uh, but yeah, I really appreciate. And I mean, I think it was also said in the zine to please somewhere near the end uh, about ceremony and about, you know, how you're saying 
everything you've learned, you kind of learn from ceremony. And I think in the zine, it says some, there's a line near the end where it says, um, you know, everything you learn about ceremony, you learn by being in ceremony. And that um, always really struck me. Like it kind of made me laugh at the time because as someone who has like, you know, been in ceremony for many years, I, I, I totally understand that there's, there's no like handbook written for these things right often you're asked to just like show up and participate. And it's through your continued participation that you slowly learn the reasons why you do things over the years, right? Like as a sun dancer, no one told me even like necessarily what I should bring besides like the very, very basics. And no one said, oh, then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do this. You, you learn the reasons, you learn the stories, you learn um, the subtleties of it like through generations, um, but also just through years and years of returning um, that ceremony and, and remaining dedicated to it, right? No one's going to like give you that. Um, without that commitment um, and I think like in a lot of ways um, that's why even though I've, I, I like to write and, and I've written many things I have not necessarily felt like any strong urge to write like what a mischief anarchism would look like you know um, I think that's something that if it came would be something that um I could maybe describe, you know, years and years later, describe like something that I've seen. Um, but it's not something that I could just prescribe, you know, um, it's not something that I could theorize and then write and then put out in the world. Um, that's not, that's not the way that this goes. And, and like you guys as well, I mean, I think there is a, there is a threat that comes when you call yourself an anarchist. Um, uh, I kind of think, it's important in some in some instances to do it though, even though there is that threat there. Um, but in reality, yeah, I use it a lot. Of, a lot of the times, like saying that I'm an anarchist describes like less about the intricacies of my politics, and it's really like a shorthand, um, you know, to give somebody like the first impression of like what what I am and what I'm about, right? Um, and it is to differentiate. Uh, myself generally from leftists, from folks who are showing up to the struggle um, with ideas that are either laced in like nonviolence in a way that I, I don't appreciate uh, or are looking to engage with the state uh, and ask for things um, that I'm not willing to ask for, right? Uh, so in those ways, I think that it shortens the conversation uh, and I appreciate that about it. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like as like someone who's non-binary, um, but then there's like that umbrella term non-binary, but then there's like all these um, like words that fit under the non-binary um umbrella, like gender void or agender, you know, like if someone barely even understands like what non-binary is, I'm not going to like, you know, right off the bat be like, oh, actually like like there's just a blank space when I think of what like a gender is. So I kind of get that, like, just to like, to like, just kind of let someone know immediately what you're about and who you are. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Um, but then hopefully like more in depth conversation can happen about like what that means, especially in like conversation with, um, you know, 
other sellers. Unless we want to like directly like, you know, continue making uh, commenting on that subject, I do want to um, address one of the comments in YouTube. Uh, because I think in a lot of like conversations happening right now, they're probably talking a lot about like what settlers can do to be better allies or accomplices to natives and, and to black people and, you know, and so on and so forth. But I'm kind of like done showing up for reconciliation uh, or like cons consultative conversations. And I, I think this comment kind of steers us in like a direction that's more, um, worthwhile to me. Uh, somebody said, as a displaced African uh, Black anarchist, I really appreciate this conversation and want to know how to best collaborate. Um, and I really love this um, topic because something that really, um, you know, came to the surface and were obviously conversations happening well before the pandemic, but um, I think the pandemic really put like a catalyst out there for um, Black and Indigenous people to start having um, more and more in-depth conversations about uh, how we can collaborate and work together um, to, you know, um, abolish some of the same um, oppressors that we have. Um, and I think that that would be um, a fun topic to discuss here now. So I don't know if anyone wants to start that conversation off. <laughs> uh, I got some things to say, but Clee haven't spoken in a minute. Oh, I'm good. Uh, I'd <laughs> love to hear. Um, I, I was just, honestly, I was just so excited that you agreed to be part of this. Oh, so so I've just been waiting to hear from you more. So I'm happy just to like, step aside too. I've written a lot about the, this, so I'll just put links in the chat too. <laughs> oh, well, okay. I mean, yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this in a more panel style thing. Um, like parent life is a funny thing. And there are like certain, yeah, there are certain moments in my life where I felt like really like a strong urge to like write something or put something out myself. And then there are moments where I actually feel like my role is to kind of step back and like reflect. So um, it's been like a while since I've done any speaking, talking thing. And sometimes like days go by without even thinking about anything political. So this is like, I'm excited. <laughs> um, but I'm also excited for it to be like a conversation. So, um, but no, I'm, I guess I, I'm excited about this because I just finished or I'm in the middle of, um, a reading group on William C. Anderson's A Nation on No Map, which I just really liked. Um, I liked a lot. And uh, that that's a conversation on Black anarchism. Um, and, uh, you know, something interesting that is said in that book um, that you kind of touched on before, T, uh, is uh, at one point he kind of traces the lineage of Black anarchism and he makes a point to be like, our lineage as anarchists didn't start with white anarchism. Like our lineage came from our own, uh, our own black roots. And we like reached this anarchist position um, through our own history and legacies. Uh, and I do, and I actually, that really like resonated for me. I think that, um, like you said, like, you know, indigenous relationship with, like, with the state um, alongside like our own 
our own teachings and traditions, I think it like produces, you know, um, our own, our own of, of anarchistic thought, I guess you could say, right? Um, but no, I love this question. I think, um, you know, as I said earlier, that I, I actually do think it's my impression that um, anarchists in Canada seem to do a better job at adopting like a decolonial politics than in the States. I would also say that the flip side of that is that they seem to do a worse job of, um, uh, of, of uh, having like a critique specifically on anti-Black racism or being in solidarity with, with Black struggle generally. Um, but uh, yeah, I've had this conversation many times uh, in circles here with Black folks. And the position I always kind of have landed at um, is that while like white settlers have a responsibility of um, like reparation, that like Black folks living on these lands have a responsibility of solidarity. And all that really means to me is like, in fighting for your own liberation, um, just don't replicate, you know, those those same patterns of land theft. Um, I think that's like complicated, you know, but uh, I think it's very worthwhile. Uh, and so I don't have very many <laughs> stipulations for black folks about how they should fight for their own freedom. Um, but that, that would just be it is just like, it's just continuously think about land theft and when you are fighting for those reparations that I think you like fucking deserve, whether that's like land or money or whatever it is that you're going to like build up your community. Um, just don't take those things unquestioningly from white people because they might not belong to them to begin with. Right? Uh, yeah. That's, that's generally where I end up on that. Yeah. I'm glad you referenced the nation on no map. Um, I read that. I read it after I read um as black as resistance the the previous book that um anderson co-wrote with zoe some um and i felt like in as black as resistance they were actually more direct in addressing solidarity issues especially with indigenous people and i felt like in notion nation no map there was a, like a lot of missed opportunities that there wasn't like a fully developed anti-colonial analysis there was like no spirituality there was like you know, the connecting points for me felt like a lot of it was just sort of building on and litting like some of the heavier thinkers of initial wave of Black anarchism, like Ashanti, um, Lorenzo Irvin, Belagoon, and some other folks like sort of lead without digging deeper, um, especially because I felt like a lot of like the queer um nihilist anarcho-nihilist like negation analysis was completely missing and stripped and i think that's some of the most interesting and provocative like space where anarchism is actually being torn apart from the inside which is a beautiful um dynamic uh dimension of anarchism um but uh i think one of the things that um is really important, and and this is something that in a, in a book I'm I'm writing, which if I have time I'll read a little excerpt because I think it relates to some of the stuff tonight. Um, I think it's really important to like address intersectionality, what we mean by that, where it comes from, and how uh, our peoples shouldn't and our struggles shouldn't just meet on intersections, but uh, think of them in terms of interrelationships. How and and, and maybe 
change inner or build off inner relation in intersectionality with the concept of interrelationality, because that's what we say when we talk about mutuality. Um, how are we related? Like during the uh, George Floyd uprisings, um, there were a lot of folks who just wanted to do actions, like a lot of activisty stuff. And usually, I'm really excited and stimulated about that. But during the pandemic, and especially because my I was having some health issues at the time and still am, um, I was very hesitant to go out in big crowds. So. I, I, in a series of meetings, I was like, I'm more, I'm less interested in being on the street right now and more interested in just building relationships with like black radical folks who are fighting for autonomy and finding the ways that we can deepen these relationships with each other. Like, I want to know who you are, where you come from, like what our connections are and deepen that beyond just like somebody with a megaphone shouting like three word chants that are going to be like, you know, that's important and it's important to express and very visceral with and cathartic with um, the rage that we show in the streets against uh, the sage against the machine, rage against the machine. Um, but I think that interrelationality and deepening our understandings of what we talk about when we talk about mutual aid and uh, developing more um, this idea of interrelationality beyond intersectionality, because it isn't just about our nationalisms, like internationalisms. It isn't just about our intersections, uh, the sex that we come from. It's about the relationships that we have, not just to human people, but non-human beings and Mother Earth as well. Where are we at? What relationships do we have there that will help guide us and spring forward? Have we offered this, this, the offerings that we need to for consent? And then how can we build from there? You know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people asking, well, what about these folks? And, 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 and they're not settlers. And, and this is something powerful that, um, in as black as resistance, Anderson and, uh, Samudzi, um, address that, um, they say, uh, black, American land politics cannot simply be built on top of centuries old exterminatory settler logic of indigenous removal and genocide. Rather, the actualization of truly liberated land can only come about through dialogue and co-conspiratorial work with native communities and a shared understanding of land use outside of capitalist models of ownership. Um, and to me, that's where we need to start. Um, and, and we should be there already. And in some communities, it is there. Some communities, it's not. Um, but that's the power, to me, of solidarity. Yeah. Um, you know, like even in the intro to our podcast, we say, you know, we, we're living on stolen land built by stolen lives. And so the struggles that um, both, you know, Black and Indigenous people um, experience on these lands are interrelated from from the time contact of you know European contact on these lands um and so I think you know the opportunities to collaborate are um like rooted in the same um you know framework and and I think one thing that has kind of pitted um black and indigenous people against each other is that the media tends to like hyper sensationalize, um, you know, black, black life and, and black experience, especially in, you know, the, the portrayal of the stereotypical, like black criminal, or if they're not, um, you know, a criminal, they're like a rapper or, um, an athlete. And, and I just remember, um, you know, in the, 
like when the Black Lives Matter movement was really taking off, there were a lot. I, I was, you know, I, um, it's hard for me to say, but I was really kind of in, disappointed by our, you know, indigenous relatives for kind of co-opting that hashtag and saying, well, well, Native lives matter. And it's like, yes, our lives matter too. Um, but that's, you know, not, not the point. And um, I think, you know, in, in other ways that um, like I've seen indigenous people um, just kind of like um, as a result, like I was saying of the media, it felt like just like their lives have been like erased. There's like an erase, like the, just like the juxtaposition of being like, like hyper sensationalized versus just like completely erased from society and from and, and media and, and things like that. It, it kind of created that like oppression Olympics situation um, that became like a big point of um, critical conversations during the, the pandemic. And, um, you know, even, even that, even like when we talk about these, these things and, and, you know, just like, like how an indigenous person operates in their daily life versus like because of colorism, how like a black person would, those, those, those things are different. Um, and we have a different, like due to colorism, like we have a different way of interacting with um, the same oppressor. And so we can't like talk about like our solidarity unless we're talking about like specifically anti-blackness and anti-black racism. And I think those, those conversations um, I think like, like we said are happening. I don't think they're happening enough. And I especially don't think they're happening enough between specifically, um, you know, black and indigenous anarchists or people of like an anarchist approach. Yeah. And I like that you're, you know, also touching on, um, the ways in which like native folks need to be better. Um, yeah, I'm stuck with like a few things, you know, um, a lot of like front line struggle that happens in this side of the border, um, in native communities is, is actually sometimes like quite hard to get to. It's like in the bush or it's like far into a territory, uh, like out west, right? Um, and when you go there, like one of the stipulations is like, you have to be prepared to kind of take care of yourself. And sometimes that means in like really cold weather um, outside. And um, it is it is just true that, uh, that white folks, like white anarchists or white leftists are, are uh, in larger numbers, the ones that actually like respond to those calls and go to those places. And I actually think that it's not so much that like black folks don't want to be on the front lines or don't think that that's like somewhere that they could or should be. I think there's actually like a lot of structural things that, that come into play there. Like even in like land defense projects, like 1492 land back lane that was not necessarily in the bush, but was like living in tents and like living like uh, out in the elements. There were like lots of folks, like black folks that I knew that were like, I just like have never slept in a tent before, you know? Um, and so I actually do think that there are legacies which like folks of color have been removed from land and then like 
socialized to believe that, you know, spending time on land and out on the land, camping, fishing, hunting, doing those kinds of things are like not for them. Those are like white people things. Uh, and that actually then like means that a lot of those like skills or experiences aren't things that they already have when like calls go out to respond to these things. So I think there are like structural things there um, that should be addressed. And in addition to that, I have been at many a fire on a blockade line where anti-black racism is happening, you know, not with black folks there, but just in the like jokes, general banter and like culture and like that shit needs to be shut down. Um, and again, like, right. That is, uh, that is like racism that has been like adopted for a reason. Like when people are like, super fucking oppressed and like put down sometimes like and all they know about black folks is like what they see on like Canadian media right because they live on res and like they barely know any black folks that live there not that like black natives don't exist but in like a lot of places they're in like a very few few number um and so like that segregation has also like produced this situation in which native folks only interaction with black folks is like through the media and black folks don't come out to the res very much because it's like a little like bit outside of their like experience now. Um, and so there's like that divide there, right? That also uh, needs to be bridged, I think, in order to like form more of those relationships of solidarity on the front lines here. Yeah, I think, you know, as it is, is like, <sighs> people who want like total liberation by the means in which we all agree are very few and far between, <laughs> you know, even amongst like our own like native communities, like there aren't very many of us out there. Um, and so I know that's a struggle that, you know, my black kin have, have expressed as well. And, and within their own, you know, black communities is, it's like where 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 are they like we're we're here but where <laughs> i know a lot of um people have like been able to connect like you know like digitally and and, and virtually and that's given like kind of like a way of like having solidarity in that way but like the the chance to like all come together to do some like direct action is like fewer and further between um so i think that's something like we'll just like continue to grapple with especially as people who um choose to live um closer to the land in smaller towns um in communities or um you know on their their homelands on, on their like uh reservation in the reservations and stuff like that too so um yeah, I think like the beginning and, and continuation of this conversation is super necessary. Also, shout out to Afro-Indigenous relations who have been holding it down and bridging like the gap in this conversation that we are not representing here, like Etsy Betts and a whole range of other folks who have been really fierce, who've been writing about this and exemplifying what that solidarity means because of, of where they come from and the, the ways that our relations have connected throughout so-called history. I want to hear more from you, uh, Twinike. 
regarding like because you published Settlers on the Red Road and sort of like uh, connects to like the discussion, the challenges that we face engaging with like solidarity. Um, but beyond that, like in your own community too, like I, I saw somebody in the chat bring up something about like um, centering and supporting warrior societies, decentering non-native politicking of any flavor, be it anarchist or liberal. Like how do we communicate this in our own communities? Like as indigenous, as people who are comfortable using that term and asserting or pronouncing ourselves in the world as indigenous anarchists, like, you know, we got a little bit of the why, but how does that relate to our own communities as well? And like, what's your experiences could you rephrase the question just a little bit differently? I don't think I fully understood what uh, you're saying. Well, I, well, there's two things, I guess. Like, um, <laughs> how do you relate indigenous anarchism as an indigenous anarchist in your own community? Um, and then to, like, as one of the comments in the chat um, asserted, like, we need to center and support warrior societies and decenter non-native politicking of any flavor, be it anarchist or liberal like maybe a response to that as well in terms of like the different prevailing attitudes that we have in our own communities and conflicts with like settler politics as a whole. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in my own communities, I do. So for instance, um, on occasion, we have opportunities to stand up uh, at our like Sundance family gatherings and like, either just talk about things that are going on for us or things that we want to see um, at ceremony, um, things that we didn't like to see last year. Just like a general like uh, like neutrality and like building together of, of the ceremony that we want, the ceremony that we need. Um, and there has been occasion where I stood up and talked about being an anarchist and, and what that meant to me. Um, even though perhaps like in that moment, I, I didn't like necessarily, I saw, or like, I did see like some confused faces and like, there were maybe like jokes from like elders after, but like how like, just always just like fuck shit up, you know, like that is like the, the general like, uh, idea of what they, what they think of when they think of anarchists. Um, but I do like, I, I try to integrate those things. Um, at least like because I like to bring my whole person to ceremony you know like I I'm gonna show up like as a queer person I'm gonna show up like as a mixed person I'm gonna show up like as an anarchist and that that's who I'm gonna be when I'm there um uh and that's that's sometimes you know that's sometimes interpreted or or understood by people in different ways you know um, but I actually think that I can say that I think overwhelmingly when I do like identify as an indigenous anarchist in, in those spaces, I think what people hear is that, is that I do identify with like a warrior spirit. I'm not like necessarily one to like claim that title. I like never have. Um, but I think that is what people think of. And that's like maybe the shorthand for them saying like, oh, he's always getting into trouble or like fucking shit. That's like them like kidding around with me. But in reality, like what they think that means is like just like on the front lines a lot, right? And like that's generally what I'm talking about when I'm standing up to say like, this is why this is important to me. Um, is like talking about different frontline struggle, either that like 
I'm spending a lot of time at in that moment or things that are like farther away that I think people should know about and be thinking about or be like praying for, to be honest. Um, and so, uh, I think that, I think that like warrior societies and that like warrior spirit are, um, I think that they are really important. Um, I think that when they're taken up with the like burden of responsibility that like a warrior and a warrior society needs to shoulder to like be a responsible and like meaningful member of, of the community. I think that it's like really sacred and beautiful. And I think that we actually really do need uh, those warrior societies. I, um, I, uh, sometimes have done like some really great talks with um like a comrade from burning church uh first nation who's a Mi'kmaq warrior and uh i really like and he identifies as a, as a warrior uh, part of a warrior society has a warrior spirit um he also like thinks very militarily because he spent time in the military like when he was younger but he like really he like decided to like leave that life and really like use anything that he learned um, in accordance with uh, his own Mi'kmaq values uh, to fight for autonomy and sovereignty. And uh, I really love talking with him. And um, when we do talk together, um, he wouldn't identify necessarily as an anarchist, but I do. Uh, and me and him really have like a great back and forth. And I think that he said many times that like in reality and like his mind, maybe, maybe like he is using the word, like saying that he's a warrior in, in, in similar ways that I'm saying that I'm an Um And so, you know, is it the same though? Like, no, it's, it's not, right? Like that's the thing is that a warrior is like a role in our society. And I think that it comes with a lot of responsibilities. And it's not just a responsibility that you like pick up and, and put down. Um, that's like a ceremony bundle, I think. And so uh, I think that we should be prioritizing um, people picking up those bundles and, and like learning what it actually means to be a warrior. But that's like not something, um, not something to take lightly. Um, uh, and so I don't think like necessarily that the words are interchangeable or something like that, right? I think of it more as like a ceremony though. And it's contextual, like we can't talk like pan-indigenously about it. There's so much loaded romantic baggage projected onto indigenous people as like the warrior. And a lot of that has been about um settler captivity of indigenous fighting spirit like in some cultures a warrior is just anybody who takes on that responsibility to protect the land and the people uh in other um indigenous communities it's a very established role with ceremonies disciplines medicines and so forth and so when we talk about that we can't talk loosely i think there's a contextualization but it's important to recognize the responsibilities and the shared responsibilities that we have in terms of carrying that medicine for protection and carrying that medicine for attack 
I wanted to respond to something in the chat, if it's okay, unless you wanted to jump in about warriors, uh, Bon. Um, in it's about indigenous anarchism. The question, I think, uh, let me go back to it. What's the difference um, between an indigenous anarchist and most approximate in its most approx approximate form of anarchy? Uh, if I'm explaining what anarcho-conservatism is, I'm not sure. Uh, in terms of anarchy, I have to differentiate between a lot of BS. Um, I, I, hopefully, I understand the the question enough. Um, and I'm not sure what arch conservatism is. Um, maybe I didn't read something, um, but I, I highly recommend folks um, if you haven't already check out Aragorn, um, who passed on a few years ago. His piece, "Locating Indigenous Anarchism," that piece was one of the first like texts that I think was written in 2009 that opened up the space for these conversations to be deepened. Um, and they haven't really been deepened that much um, by that many people. And this is why like this conversation with um, Twinike is sort of rare in unfortunate different ways. Uh, and it's something that um, I think is important when we talk about sovereignty, you know, what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about a political imposition of like governance in relation to like other settler nations? Um, or are we talking about indigenous sovereignty and autonomy um, in our terms? And I think that these questions are important as a whole in terms of how we address or engage or not with politics or anti-politics. Um, and in in uh, locating indigenous anarchism, Aragorn uh, observed that uh, if we understand that European as anarchism is a history of iconic figures, a set of increasingly radical ideas about social transformation, a practice that has only been uh, uniform in its re rejection by those in power, um, and that it is also a dynamic politic. And this is this is actually an addition. Uh, a, a, it's also a, a dynamic politic that invites its very destruction. It maintains composure of core principles, direct action, voluntary association, mutual aid. Um, then we build on this dynamic and understanding that is that indigenous anarchism is one, an anti-history of ancestral memory, two, a set of radical ideas that are not a detour, but a bridge between anti-colonial struggle and indigenous liberation. Three, a practice that expresses and asserts autonomy in the context of where it's located. And as Aragorn ob observed, uh, an indigenous anarchism is an anarchism of place. And number four, this is something that um, was added, is it's also not an identity. Um, so I, somebody else in the in the chat asked uh, if um, uh, anybody can identify as indigenous anarchist, and this might sort of like you know, add to that and respond to that. Um, uh, Aragorn had uh, established that its first principles uh, or articulated that its first principles would be that everything is alive, the ascendance of memory, and sharing is living. Um, and for a distinction, this is something that I wrote in the introduction in uh, Black Seed, not, not on any map. For a distinction, I would add that an anarchist would pronounce, there is no authority above yourself, Whereas an indigenous anarchist would offer, there's no authority but nature. Um, and to me, indigenous anarchists are an ungovernable force of nature. 
Uh, we mean that maintain that no law can be above nature. That is to say, how power is balanced and how we organize ourselves socially is an order that flows from and with Nohasan or Mother Earth, however you identify. And this is what we are accountable to. Uh, this is what we hold ourselves responsible to. It is an affinity with um, nature, and uh, it is also establishes that we will never be patriots to any political social order. So if anarchy is the, the revolutionary idea that no one is more qualified than you are to decide what your life will be, then what we offer is that indigenous anarchists consider how deeply the you are um, or the we <laughs> is uh, as part of our mutuality with all existence. Um, because before colonial invasion on these lands, Indigenous societies existed without the state, and a lot of that in terms of um, our senses of governability were completely illegible. They were completely un un uh, unintelligible and ununderstandable from a colonial perspective, and so they imposed their own perspectives, whether it was Westphalian or this sort of like perverted idea of democracy upon indigenous people to engage with us politically. So um, as the person talks about warrior societies, I completely agree that the the the, the leftist uh, uh, jargon um, is, is just an affinity to me. Um, and one more way to respond to this is like, um, you know, for me, uh, um, when, when uh, I don't find myself in a lot of these words, um, when I'm, at, when my, when I'm not at home, I call myself an indigenous anarchist specifically to agitate against assimilation and shitty liberal politics. Like, I think there just needs to be a divide and it helps to shut down. It helps to clarify that I don't fucking vote and I don't participate in the system. I'm not going to beg some politician, whether they be tribal politicians or state or federal government politicians to do something that I can do in terms of direct action. Tahoe Ajit Ego is what we call that, taking care of stuff for ourselves. And so, but when I'm home, so that's when I'm not at home. When I'm home, I am uh, uh, I'm a child of white shell woman. And to me, in that understanding with ceremony, with prayers, with the medicines, that's not where the constraints of colonial political control and categories exist. They're totally meaningless in that home space, in the home fire. So in these words... It's easy to find others, to find affinity, and to break down that liberal shit that like people try to impose on us um, and cut through it by just saying I'm indigenous anarchist. So I can uh, uh, locate an affinity of longing um, and a shared lament of dreaming for liberation. Um, it's not to say that I have an affinity with, with anarchist identity, which I think is separate from anarchism, uh, but that's maybe a whole nother story. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm conscious of time here. I want to like respect everybody's time for getting in here, but maybe um, some of what you were just saying was sparking little thoughts in my mind. And um, one of the big ones I think that I've been mulling over for a while now um, about just for myself, like what does being an Indigenous anarchist mean to me? Like if I'm going to say it, what does it mean? And like thinking about that kind of an ongoing basis. Um, I do, I really do appreciate Aragorn's, Aragorn. <laughs> um, 
ergo stipulation like anarchism is or indigenous anarchism is like one rooted to place um and our relationship to place i think that that's extremely important and i really do think that um it's in those relationships to land over time um that we actually discover can explain and continue to understand for ourselves who we are. Um, and I think a lot lately about how that relationship to place is related to kinship and like our systems of kinship um, and how our systems of governance are related to our systems of kinship, right? How like, uh, and again, lots, but not all, because there is no, I don't, I also don't believe in like a pan-Indigenism, but uh systems of kinship are rooted in like families that are related to extended families that are related in clans that are then related in nations and sometimes related in confederacies although sometimes those confederacies are permanent are permanent or temporary um and then the ways that those nations relate like the fish nation you'll hear people talking about right the salmon nation the bear nation like all of those things uh and thinking about our relationships those other those other um those other clans, those other nations of beings that exist on this land um, in perpetuity, like forever, their own families, um, and how we think of this in this interconnected like web of circles, and how it's only through remaining in one place through generations and generations that you actually build those um, kind of unbroken circles that can then like guide you and, and help you understand not only how we live on this land or how we're meant to live on this land in relation to each other, but also how all the other beings, not just animals, but also the plants, the fungi live in relation to like one another here. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, one of the things I've really been thinking about in recent years is, is just um, the way in which capitalism um, really produces like transients, right? And also like the way that the state, the state really um, governs like use of resource and use of land and dictates uh, where people live and what lands are used for what at what times. Um, and the ways in which those like natural, those natural cycles and those natural relations are, are broken in that. Um, and I think that indigenous peoples on these lands have um have those have those histories and have those relations existing in in a state that is fairly unbroken you know but especially when we when we consider it in relation to any other people whose ancestors came here from far away right whether that is like black folks um or like settlers from europe um they're existing here on these lands uh, in such a short history and with such with such short timelines of relation um, and those those timelines of relation have been completely governed by uh, the like needs uh, or will of the state um, and so you know and becoming a parent myself I've had this like these like short moments of understanding what it actually means to like be rooted in a place um, and have not only like a community of support around like you and your family, which like raising children is, is kind of a nightmare without that, um, but also how like intergenerationally um, uh, 
uh, those webs of support are built over time uh, and how, how much more meaningful they are when they're built around a place where you can actually um, describe the reasons why we do things and the reasons why we have responsibilities to each other in the land based on the stories that are woven out of the spaces and relationships that we have with, with the other beings um, and the mountains and, and the seasons uh, in those places. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the more you sit around and just think of it, the more it starts to really just become so layered and beautiful and like mind blowing. But I really do think like being rooted, being rooted in place um, uh, together, right? Being rooted in place together um, is what for me really, really guides like my vision of like what, what a beautiful future, what a beautiful different future uh, there might be for or our future, for our future ancestors. Just last thought. <laughs> I don't know if I really have like too much to add, but I've heard, you know, people say things like, well, like primitive anarchism or primitivism is basically just like living an indigenous lifestyle. Um, and I think it, it does, it does just contribute to like, um, you know, this kind of like, just like one giant net for all like, you know, indigenous life ways. I think a lot of people, you know, just based on like the pan-indigenism that's pan-indigenisms, I guess, that already exist. Um, and, and that's kind of like, I was just like more specifically answering that question of like, well, if it's not indigenous anarchy, like what can we call it? Um, and I think that it's funny because someone was talking about, um, you know, this kind of co-optation of like national day of mourning. And, and so when, I, you know, when as indigenous people, we kind of like create for ourselves, like what it means to be um, existing during um, the last 500 year apocalypse that we've been you know uh going through like it gets to a point where like even as we like create a language of our own to express like how we um operate and exist in this world it always finds its way into the settler um like settler anarchist i guess if you will like vocabulary um and like like what do settlers have to mourn today? <laughs> like, you know, they should like, there should be like more of a, like, and that came actually um, from a crime think post today that um, Klee actually brought up in conversation earlier today. Um, and so I guess like, that's just like my one like thing I would add to, you know, having like, a specific language just for like indigenous people to speak about the way that they operate as like anarchists will always be co-opted by non-indigenous people. Um, and, and so I don't even really know what that adds to the conversation, but it's just something that, you know, comes up a lot. Um, and, and like, and it comes up a lot, I think, a here in occupied Flagstaff too. And that like, you know, as, as like, um, like the people of color in Flagstaff are mostly indigenous people. 
And so white anarchists or, you know, neoliberals really like co-opt a lot of like our um, like language and messaging um, around like, you know, police abolition and stuff like that, only to find that underneath the surface, like their like agenda is to, um, you know, reconcile our lives um, with the like city council and the government and, and stuff like that. And so I just think that it's important, like for everyone, you know, as um, like POC who are kind of like, like creating the like language of like how we, how we resist and, and how we um, continue to push back on these struggles um, always seems to find its way into like a neoliberal agenda without having the actual, um, you know, like protocol or perspective or, or framework or experience for even being able to, to talk in that way. And so it's just something that I think can become very um, sensitive in, in the conversation of like, you know, how would like indigenous anarchy influence um, the approaches of, of like settler anarchists, if you will. And meanwhile, we're caught between this space where I think somebody was like asking about indigenous Marxism. And to me, it's like caught between indigenous Marxists who are authoritarian nationalists who want to like as a precondition for uh, a stateless society, go on the detour of making indigenous peoples a proletariat or a laboring class, industrializing like the natural world, and then going through the revolution to then be the stateless society, which is a, an unnecessary detour, um, really. And it's 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 why recycle you know the the dead thoughts of dead white European people, no matter how much they have been sort of like rearticulated from folks of color um, throughout the rest of the world in their struggles. Because like you know you we can look at anti-colonial struggles in some contexts and see that indigenous peoples are still struggling but the national liberation struggles can still have an anti-colonial character, but they still are a project of progress and modernity that are serving civilization and serving, serving the industrial impulses that still maintain and perpetuate resource colonialism or resource destruction of Mother Earth, which indigenous people's hands are part of. They just happen to be um, a, a social, revolutionary socialists or Marxists. Um, and on the other hand, we have liberals who are celebrating like, you know, these um, uh, MMIW uh, without the G2ST um, police task force, you know, as a solution um, to addressing the problem that colonialism has created and precipitated upon indigenous peoples, which which colonialism, uh, colonial violence is always gendered violence. It's violence against the land you know, violence against the land is violence against our bodies and particularly indigenous women in terms of um, their their roles and relationships and queer trans two-spirit folks. So these are, these are some of the issues where um, caught between these choices, indigenous anarchism to me is the most reconcilable option. And I'm not trying to promote something. I'm trying to antagonize or provoke um, that conversation deeply to stir shit up 
amongst these discussions of what we're even in, in, in discussing regarding, you know, these colonial politics, because that's like an assumed identity that most people are willing to apply. Um, you know, on one hand, we have people saying voting is sacred, uh, um, which which is an obscene form of settler inclusion, which I think it, it, it undermines our ancestors' sort of like liberatory dreams. Um, but I, I wanted to speak a little bit about this point you brought up, I guess, in closing about the, the, the National Day of Indigenous um, or National Day of Mourning. Um, and, and I de- just wrote something really quick, so I'll read it. Um, but I don't believe there will ever be a National Day of Indigenous Resistance. Um, a National Day of Mourning, an Indigenous People's Day, yes, because these are markers that don't directly challenge settler power. Um, we've seen particularly with Indigenous People's Day that narratives can shift addressing recognition and settler inclusion. Even the U.S. government recognizes Indigenous People's Day and look at all the land acknowledgments that all these municipalities are doing all over the place. But the underlying power relationships are left intact. They're just recognizing that there was a problem, and that's part of the issue. Uh, This isn't to diminish mourning, as I think it's safe to say in most all Indigenous cultures that mourning is is a deep part of the healing process and an important part of the healing process. Uh, And considering that colonization is a structure and not an event, according to Wolf, um, that due to intergenerational trauma, we'll be mourning for a very, very long time. What is that point where we go beyond grief and survival? Uh, And this is where I like that old radical saying by the Wobbly from IWW, uh, um, Joe Hill, don't just mourn, organize. Um, And part of the reason that we hold um, no thanks, no giving is to um, not celebrate genocide, but celebrate indigenous resistance. And it's frustrating today that we have to have, qualify that with celebrating, celebrate autonomous anti-capitalist indigenous resistance because we have so many nonprofits that are, you know, co-opting radical language um, and profiteering off of a lot of these struggles. Um, the To me, the, the, these questions that we're asking um, lead to the task that I proposed of indigenous anarchy in the book Black Seed um, or you know, the, the task of indigenous autonomy, if you prefer to drop the colonial political identifier, uh, which is to replace the principle of political authority. And we can qualify it as, you know, um, colonial political authority in terms of this discussion with the principle of autonomous indigenous mutuality. Um, there's a deep affinity in this relationality that resonates with those that the earth also claims to be of and with. Uh, So when people ask, like, who is an indigenous anarchist, ask that question and find your answer. Um, As an autonomous anti-colonial agitator, I've stopped vying to appeal to the sympathies and charity of settler allies. And I I think it's important to weaponize our contradictions, uh, to live a life in conflict with authoritarian constraint on stolen lands is a spiritual, it's a mental and a material proposition. It is the negation of settler colonial domination. So how can we embody that? And to me, 
it is the embodiment of direct action as healing, as culture, and as a, a way of life. It is reconnecting to that which for us is mutual aid as we've always known it and practiced it. It is a continuous ceremony of destruction and creation. It is the discourse of, to me, it's the discourse of the unseated sacred that we will never allow to be desecrated. Yeah. Yeah. I When you talk about like um, Indigenous Day morning, that's something obviously we don't have in Canada, although we now have a National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Um, but I mean, when I when I really think about like what do white people have to mourn like um, there is this part of me that I'm like actually like a lot like um, you know when when I look at like even like the co-option of like people in nonprofits um, some of which I think is like uh, maybe malicious or like power hungry a lot of the times what I see is just like a lot of like kind of confusion and bumbling around and like not really understanding like how how to like fight for liberation because I, I really do believe that like you know even white people a long time ago like had relationships with land in the places that they lived um and they've gone through cycles of just like having those relationships be replaced by like religion and the church and then having those relationships be replaced by the state and and settlers are so concerned with rights you know like that's their framework they're like how do we win rights? What rights can we have? Um, and I, I think of that as like a really sad, a really sad thing to fight for and a really sad thing to think that like those, those are, those are the greatest things that, that you could receive. Um, and I think that in all of my teachings and the things that I think about is, is not about rights. It's about responsibilities. Like what responsibilities do I have? Um, and, and what are my responsibilities to other people on the land? Um, and, you know, in ceremony, you know that, like, there you have you, you have gifts and responsibilities, and it, it's up to you to uphold those. And every gift is also a responsibility. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, it's, not, it's not that I think we should go easy on the white people or something. I just, I, I actually do think that in, in a lot of ways, uh, the co-option that we see or or some of the stuff that I read about that I wrote about in um, Settlers on the Red Road is like the result of kind of like being spiritually starving. Um, and so I think that they I think that like as 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 their own community really have um, a lot of a lot of work to kind of get right with the land and get right with each other, get right with uh, other people um, because they, I really think that that uh, they've they've forsaken so many of their responsibilities in the pursuit of right what a good conversation i wish we could keep talking um somebody in the chat was like can you do this every month <laughs> and i think that would be so fun um we do have a podcast so you can check out some more um you know conversation about some of these critical topics there there's a lot of zines on our website too um, but maybe we'll, we'll consider doing something, um, you know, live like this more often. I think it's, it's a really, um, great way to involve people in the conversation and, and get us to start thinking about, you know, things that might've not crossed our minds too. So thanks for everyone's contributions.
I really loved all the questions and topics today. And thanks to everybody for your donations today. We I haven't checked the update, but last I saw, we were upwards of over like $9,000 that came in, which is really just powerful and like awesome community support, which will go directly into like making sure that Halahuan Info Shops is radical space is sustained and our projects can um, continue. Uh, I wanted to, I'll throw that up right now, actually, just to make sure people have that, um, that link. And then just another one more little short note is that, um, there, there was a black seed issue number eight, um, and there wasn't necessarily an issue number nine planned until some folks, uh, got together and said that there should be one. And so that is now um, happening. And so there's a call out on anarchistnews.org, um, a call out from nowhere, mysterious, who, um, uh, for Black Seed number nine, issue number nine. And this is a, a specifically, it's a print uh, newspaper that is a journal of indigenous anarchy. Um, and so there's uh, a, an editorial collective that's putting it together. There's a call for folks to send in different works. Um, and you can email them at black, the black seed at proton.me. Um, but check out the link on anarchistnews.org. And I, I, I put this in the, um, the YouTube chat, um, but I'll, I'll put it there again um, as well before we, um, we log off. So just wanted to make those announcements and thank everybody for being here, uh, especially our, our guest uh, Twinike. It's been a long time coming. So it's really wonderful to have your presence, your input. Um, and uh, you've done a lot of like hard work on the ground in the front lines and um, written a lot about that, done a lot of thinking and praying over you know, a lot of these topics. So, you know, these aren't things. And just to remind folks who are like asking, maybe who are new to some of these ideas that we're talking about, these aren't things that we're like studying in academic books. These are lived experiences that are coming from the struggles that we face and interface with firsthand. Um, and I think that's part of the strength and the value of like a lot of where the, um, anti-colonial indigenous anarchist antagonisms are coming from. It's just, we're seeing the failures of so many other like political aspirations and the trappings of them and the ways that we cannot just, you know, reject it and, and, and retreat into a space of affinity in leftism, but actually interrogate leftism as a whole, as anarchy uh, invites us to do, to flip the whole thing upside down and watch it burn if necessary. So um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks to everybody who's donated as well. Just really quick, someone did ask um, if they can buy merch. And um, obviously like donating is great because then like no money has to go to a dumb like capitalist or, um, you know, like something like that. But if you go, I'm sharing my screen um, because I want you to, sh I want to show you how you can go to the link. Um, is my screen sharing? Yes, it says that I am. Um, so the link in our bio on our Instagram page takes you to this page, uh, Autonomous Indigenous Distro. So there's some merch there. And then if you click here for the distro website, um, my connection's kind of slow, but there's like a lot of other really cool 
stuff on there as well. And then, um, uh, God, there are some other good points I wanted to make too, but I think I'm a little brain fried at this point. Um, oh yeah, look. Um, so there's some cool pins and stickers and, and other things like that too. So you can go, uh, there to check that out. Can I add one thing real quick? Yeah. Um, and we published most of the like high-res PDFs of any of these designs and they're anti-copyright. So if you want to make your own, if like, because our shop has been shut down so long because all the space at Tullow and Info Shop is just all dedicated to mutual aid, even our screen printing stuff, feel free to make your own, but just obviously for non-commercial purposes and settlers pay up, <laughs> like if you're going to do that shit, but for indigenous folks, especially you know, like BIPOC folks, like, please just have at it, like take those images and make them, um, even sell them for your, like your own organization's benefit. That's what it's for is to like help proliferate and support and like propagandize the work that we're doing. Uh, thank you everyone for being here. And, uh, I hope you have a good night of, uh, flipping some tables and smashing some shit. <laughs> Sounds good. If you guys ever want to, we can do it again. We can just spend a whole hour and a half talking about indigenous communism. (laughs) Let's definitely do it again. You can find this broadcast on any of the usual podcast platforms or at indigenousaction.org backslash podcast. Email us pics of burning cop cars, burning churches, burning forts, or any questions or topics you'd like to hear us go claws out on at iainfo at protonmail.com.